Yeah. Packy, this fucking post that you just did is like the longest thing I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. It's 8,200 words or something. Is that the longest thing you've ever written? Probably not. Uh, no? no, I wrote I wrote a piece on something called Senius that was 11,000 words. I don't, like, what sort of feedback did you get on this piece? Great feedback. Do you get Do you get feedback from your inbox? I get or mostly in Twitter. Inbox, Twitter. I have a feedback thing at the bottom. I get feedback everywhere. It was so fucking deep. I thought I was deep, and then it went 14 more miles, and I bailed. <laughs> what was so deep? His fucking his latest post was like, literally, like went to the core of the universe. <laughs> core of the metaverse. That's right. So, but now you have all this pressure because your fan base is like big. So Tell now, do you feel like every uh, Substack you write, like every, why do I call them Substacks? I don't know, that's what I was just thinking. It's every like when post, people say, every... did you write a blog? No, I wrote a post. Do you feel like every post that you write has to meet the prior post in quality? Can you be inconsistent and just like let it fly or? I mean, I never let it fly. I okay. know that some of the, you know, some posts are just not going to be as good as other ones. Ones that I think are shit end up being some of the most popular ones. Forget about audience reaction. I'm just saying, like, in your own head, are you like, this isn't good enough, I have to do more, or no? I'm always spending, you know, four days just heads down doing as much as I possibly can, but I'm mostly writing until deep on Sunday night, waking up and editing all morning, like 5 a.m. Oh, I, I thought you had 13 days in your week. <laughs> I, I wish I had 13 days in my week. But, you know, at some point there's, like, the pencil has to – has to drop. Well, so that's a whole other conversation is like how how much of your own shit can you even cut? Because my words are my babies and I'm the worst editor on earth. I have my brother edit me yeah. when I can. And so he's phenomenal at cutting my okay. cutting my stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, some weeks I know are going to be bigger than others. Right. But if, as long as interesting stuff keeps happening in the world. Hey, if you, if you go to a party or mm -hmm. whatever, I don't even know why I said party. If you meet somebody. And like you're with like your wife and another couple, and the guy's like, "Oh, what do you do?" Newsletter writer. Is that it? I mean, kinda. No, you could say why you're would a you say writer. You're a venture capitalist. Thinker. I do get. You I do say get. I'm a thinker. Feedback like this. I'm looking at my feedback here. I'm a thinker. Oh my god. I'm a thinker. Uh, I'm a thought leader. Uh, this this is a piece of feedback that I got. I'm this a week. I'm actually a think explainer. A lot of marketing speak, faux humility, and self righteousness. Wow. So somebody said that to you? Yeah. Dude, give me that IP address. We don't know their IP address. This is a user leap survey. You need some some absolute uh, world-class trolls because you're doing too well. So you need people to like bring you back down. Hell yeah. Every, well, if every nobody week. trolls you, then nobody cares. That's the other thing. True. That's also such a shit comment. Imagine like you would never in a million years take the time to write that to anybody <laughs> of else. Of course. Like, duh, who does that? I mean, we'll talk about people on the internet, but the, the, it does just expose that there are people like this. And these people before would not have had any friends. They wouldn't mm. have had a platform. They would, nobody would listen to they them. They still don't have friends. They still don't have friends, but Has at least like, they built can get a platform people. though. Cause I'm, I'm not a troll. Like I don't like to upset people, but I think I'm like, I think I have like insights about every business that I interact with that might be helpful. And maybe this is just because I'm insane. But has anybody built a platform that's like a suggestion box for every business where I can just write 50 words and then the website finds a way to deliver it to the owner of that business? Because I have like micro things that I notice. This sounds insane. You no, sound like a crazy person. I know, I do. No, but every interaction I have with like a business, like big ones, small ones, I'm like – 
oh, these idiots, they don't get it. Josh, Josh <laughs> can make everything better. Yeah, I think Even it's... like what they name their stores, I'm like, ah, oh, it's not He is work. the best namer of all time. Oh, yeah? Of all time. Dude, this guy opened uh, this guy opened a sandwich shop. It, it was a Subway. He was the franchisee. He threw Subway out. Like, he discontinued, and he put up his own sign. Uh, Long Island? Dude, lawn, two words, lawn, Guyland, subs. I think it was three words. I think it was lawn. Was it lawn? No, it was Yeah, lawn. yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Was it literally lawn? Lawn, lawn. guy, land? Like, in other words, oh. it's, like, it's like the way we get yeah. made fun. Nobody thinks that's funny. <laughs> Nobody wants to eat any shit that comes out of a store that says that. They shut like, him down. If I had the, the, no Subway came in there was like, dude, what are you doing? No, he went out of business and then Subway came back, or maybe he. No brought, way, Subway was like, dude, you just changed the it's name. It's all franchises. Subway doesn't walk in yeah. and take people's delis. Stop, stop. There's no Subway mafia. <laughs> Jared does it himself. Well, now it's his punishment. Is, let's say there was like a service. Let's say there was a service, a suggestion box where I could go on this platform and the platform could get word to him. Hey, idiot! Nobody thinks your sign is funny. What would you Twitter? Call yep. I don't know if he was on. Yeah. I what guess would you call that? that? What would you call sandwich shop? You're good at this. Come on. Long oh, I don't, don't put me on the spot, right now, but it would right definitely now. be better than Long Guyland subs. So bad. For sure. All right. You look, you look like you're itching to get this going. Big job. Oh, are we not house. recording? <laughs> this is the official start of the show, guys. Friends, episode eight. Eight. Packy's wow. feeling the theme music. I'm feeling the theme music. Fat Nick, you feeling theme music? Oh, I'm kind of nervous. He's not a, he's, yeah, he's not. He's <laughs> I don't not know really what the different music, music comes out. I'm not like a bobbing my head guy. I've seen you. I've seen you a little bit get into it though. <laughs> Duncan's in the house. <laughs> Duncan Hill, say hello to everybody. Hey, Mike everyone. on. There he is. Yeah, it's on. All right, you can hear me. Big John's in the house. Thanks, John. Welcome to the Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me. Michael Batnick and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. According to a 2019 Deloitte survey, and you guys know I love surveys, 88% of wealth managers recommend investing in art and collectibles. Contemporary art outperforms stocks, gold, and real estate by almost two times from 1995 through 2020. So it's no surprise that titans like Stevie Cohen and Michael Batnick put hundreds of millions of dollars into art. But unless you've had an extra $10 million lying around, you've been shut out of this overlooked asset class until now. Masterworks.io lets you invest in contemporary art at a fraction of the entry cost. Learn more at masterworks.io slash compound today. See important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Packy's back. So excited to have you back. Welcome to week eight, or I should say episode eight of the Compound and Friends. Probably the best financial podcast ever. I know it's being debated right now, but uh, I would just weigh in on on the side of it being the best. We um we have a lot of fun doing this, and we have great uh we have great guests who are friends of ours in real life, and we actually really want to talk to. And Packy was on episode one, and I think you've been practicing. So like this time, you should like actually be good to go. I got my first 
barber haircut, like not shaving my own head this afternoon. That's how seriously I'm taking this. All right. So you're like very bougie now. You launched a venture capital fund. Mm-hmm. This is the first thing we want to talk about because I'm fascinated by it. Um, I'm not in that world, but I read about it all the time and I have a lot of friends that are and I just love it. And I'm curious about it. I'm skeptical of it like and everything in between. But you launched a fund. We're proud of you. Do we have a round of applause? Hell yeah. Throw it up. There we go. Oh, my God. Thank you. Louder. All right, dude, it's amazing. <laughs> Wait, so, so this is your but this is your first time managing money for outside people. This is my first time managing money for outside people. Are you sleeping? I am not sleeping. I mean, so there is the writing schedule, which is ideally I lock myself in a room and think and write and that's it. And then there's the venture capital schedule, which is this founder wants to talk to you for 15 minutes at 8.30 and then again at 3.30 and you have to take those calls. And so the two schedules are kind of tough. So the writing ends up happening, you know, in the morning, at night, when the baby's asleep, on the weekends, all of that. So not much sleep. So this is this is like a big deal. You've got some like serious people. You could brag here. And people this, are interested. Hold on, let, me so just, let, can... me just, let me just brag for you. Okay. You've got, this is public now. You've got Mark Andreessen as partner, Chris Dixon. You have Michael Batnick. Like you have real investors. Like <laughs> big. <laughs> Wait, are you an LP? Yeah. Are you breaking his balls all day? Like, uh, are you asking for updates? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in, in venture companies? I, I did write one update, and I got a bunch of feedback that it was the longest update that any of my LPs have ever gotten, which is, I, I think, pretty yeah. on, on brand. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's been it's been really cool. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people hate fundraising, whether that's founders, whether that's people raising funds. I've had a blast with it's this process. For you. It's different for you. You're not working with consultants and, all, and Wall Street firms and cap intro. You're not, these are friends- Friends and fans. That's how we raise money. So you're you're in a different league than all the people that complain about the fundraising process. Are you the first person like this is like a new field where you went from newsletter writer to venture capitalist in like thirty six hours? Like are you the first? Like is this this is and it sounds like you're you're not gonna be the last. Like this is now oh, no way. this is now yeah, like yeah. A, a real model that people are going to follow. Yeah, so I think the content creator of some sort to investor thing is a well-trodden path. So Turner Novak's a guy who did it. He makes memes, but he also writes and he's a really good writer. He's written great stuff on Snap and Pinduoduo and a bunch of other companies and drops fire memes. And that's how he gets to founders, right? Like that's how he gets noticed. And then they realize, oh, this guy's really smart and, nice and all those kinds here. of things. Right, right. Lee Jin uh, was already at Andreessen Horowitz, but kind of wrote the post defining the passion economy. She raised a fund to invest in the passion economy. So there's definitely a few like this. And then on the other side, Andreessen obviously has done a bunch on the media side. They just launched Future, which is their own uh, kind of publication. And so I think more and more and more people are realizing that these two things go together really nicely. Just from my own personal perspective, all of my deal flow in one way or another comes from the newsletter, whether that's a founder reads it, whether that's I've written about a certain topic that somebody's building in, whether that's an investor reads it and intros me, it all comes from the newsletter. And it's a good way to just kind of think and explore different spaces. It's the most organic thing on earth. I mean, this we this is how we built our business. It's, inba- yeah. it's inbound. Our our first two hundred clients were readers of Barry's The Big Picture blog. He didn't start the blog saying I'm going to own an RIA someday. It's a natural organic fit that if somebody becomes a fan of your writing and your philosophy and what you're saying, and then you say, not only do I want to talk about this, but I actually will do it for you. It's it's completely organic. It's not like you're like, oh, I write this Substack about tech, and then also I'm I'm doing like um I'm doing like I'm making my own horseshoes, and <laughs> and you should let me you know do horseshoes for your horses. Like it's 
This is like as organic as it gets, I feel like. It fits totally well. And a lot of people are like, oh, you know, venture is the monetization engine for tech substack. And like certainly, you know, if this goes well, it'll make money and and all of that. But I think the really cool thing for me, having come from working in finance and working at a company, I don't like to just sit there and write and just say like, oh, here's what's wrong with the company or here's what's right about the company and not put some skin in the game uh, and not like actually kind of get involved and back the companies and help them and all of that. So I really love the marriage of those two things. So reading the your first letter, which I thought was a perfect, just a chef's kiss amount of length. It was just perfect. Thank you. Um, there's like, when, how, how, I mean, there's 30 companies that you just started. How, how? How like <laughs> how did you do all of this in such a short period of time? So there were 20 investments in Q2, and I really like kind of started raising and committing money out of the fund at the same time before there was even a dollar in the bank. I was like, here, take my money, but like hold off. I'll actually wire it to you in a couple of weeks. So it was about a quarter, and there were 20 investments. In July, probably at 16 already, which sounds absolutely wait, insane. Wait, what do you mean? In, dude, it's July 22nd. I know. Uh, which I mean, and some of those like closed, but they were happening that last. to Packy's due diligence. He's. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it's all algorithmic what due you're diligence. Do, what you're doing is angel, pre-angel almost. So it actually makes sense well, so to, to do it that way. Talk about like where you are in the company's evolution. Yeah. Like, are you investing at the level at the stages that you thought you would be? Is it earlier? Is it later? So I thought that I was going to be investing, you know, kind of twenty percent pre-seed. And so by pre-seed, I mean there is maybe a live product, maybe idea. a it's couple like of customers, like an sometimes an idea in a deck. I don't think I'm smart enough, so I don't do a ton of investing there unless I really, really know a space or the particular founder already really well. I thought I'd be doing 20% late stage. And by late stage, I mean like the valuation is north of $250 million. So like growth stage. And then I thought I'd be doing the bulk in the middle. And pretty much it's ended up being in that range. So a lot of smaller funds, like the fund will be like $9.999 million dollars. A lot of smaller funds just stick to pre-seed because you can own more of the company and all of that. I yeah. think that's kind of BS for a fund of this size. And when I'm not leading and all of that, like I kind of want cash on cash returns here. And so the way that I'm thinking about it is there's going to be some early pre-seed bets that work really, really well. There's going to be a bunch of late stage ones. Like I invested in Scale AI, which is a $7.3 billion company. That's the most expensive one that I've done. That is a likely kind of three to five X, right? Or potentially more, but likely three to five X. And so higher floor, lower ceiling and from a returns perspective. And the middle is where hopefully you get a, a few like kind of hundred X type companies. And the goal is to make the whole fund return kind of five X. I heard this guy, uh, Gringa talking from, uh, was it FJ Labs? Mm-hmm. He's like seed round for Alibaba. Like he's like a- you get one of those. and He's like a godfather. But he- Bills himself, I think. I think he calls it uh, stage agnostic. Yep. Like it's a good idea, or it's not. And if I'm late, or if I'm early, whatever. That's not the most important thing. And I mean, if you look back, right? Like you invest in Facebook at ten billion dollars, which both seems late and absolutely insane at the time to invest in Facebook at ten billion dollars. Yeah. And that has returned hundred x at at this point, right? Like, so I think uh, personally, I'm stage agnostic. If you get in the right company. Just get in that company and it will return for so you. So a couple of things that you did that I, I thought were really, was really admirable um, because you're you're trafficking in a world where like the injuries and people are talking to you, but you reserve spots for readers of your, and I don't know if they're also venture capitalists already or not. Like I'm, I'm sure they're accredited at least, but like just the idea that like you want to bring people with you, I think is really admirable. Thank you. I mean, that that's- so the response from that was crazy. So I sent this out. I thought I was, you know, I had about 
two million dollars left in you know if I you need to stay under ten million if you have over hundred investors. Yeah. So I had about two million dollars left. I thought I'd maybe get half of that, maybe get two and fill it out. Six hundred people submitted twenty eight million dollars oh worth of interest. How much for that? So How- six hundred people, twenty eight million dollars wow. total. Interest. So why did you just? Why didn't you just say yes and restructure the fund? Is it Was it just too much work to, to do that first time out? So I said in the letter, and I think this is true, I would much rather flex on speed of fund. So, you know, traditional fund, you'll raise, you'll deploy it over two to three years. I would much rather keep it in that kind of $10 million range and do it every nine months, for example. But that means that- So you could have a second fund instead. Well, you can have a second fund and all of that, but like a $100,000 check could return the fund in this case. Whereas if I had a $25, $50 million fund, that wouldn't be the case. And then I'd have to go into every conversation and not just convince them to let me invest, but also say like, hey, you need to kick out five other people because I need to get $250,000 worth of allocation. Or or think bigger. (laughs) Or think bigger or like dilute yourself more. It's it's easier to just get a $100,000 check in and up and down depending on round size. And so I want to have a fund size that- that check can be meaningful. Now, you also put a bounty out for good ideas in the form of a carry split with any of your readers who are like, hey, I know this company or I know these guys building something. So you're almost like incentivizing your now very vast readership to bring you stuff, which is genius. I mean, that is, that should be a big part of your appeal is that you have this two-way dialogue with smart people. It's. I mean, the, the only reason I'm able to do this whole thing is because people read and share and interact with not boring. And so to then say like, thank you so much for all of your attention and like the hours it takes to read these pieces. I'm going to go get rich now. See you guys later. (laughs) So I want to involve, you know, the audience and the readership as much as humanly possible in this, because this is, and this is not like, you know, somebody gave me a comment, I think on that post, probably that there's like false humility. And this is not false humility. Like I never in a million years thought that I'd be running a venture fund. And so the fact that like I am even able to do this, I want to kind of just lean into that uh, advantage that the audience. Okay, so while so while you funded seventy or eighty companies in the last <laughs> couple of weeks, the global funding to startups we've all seen this chart. John, I think you probably have this one from uh, from Michael's article. See, it's from CB Insights. It's one hundred and fifty six billion dollars in a quarter. It's, a, to, it's hilarious. Which like breaks every record on record. I don't mean. There's only one quarter, which is even close, which was the first quarter of this year. We know that the money supply just generally is the driver of this. In addition to there being a lot of exits from all these SPACs and IPOs, people actually got their cash out of other deals and they're not going to sit there and they're not going to put it into treasury bonds. So we understand like the – so let me just straight up ask you, is there too much money or will you know there's too much money – when there were just no companies to fund because they're all set. Like, how does that, how does that work in your probably mind? Probably the latter. So I showed a stat in the piece that I wrote last week that was the value of all of the 750 unicorns in the world combined is less than the value of Apple. And like, you know, from a profit perspective, that makes sense. Apple's a machine. They generate, I think they must generate way more profit than all of those companies combined. So Dude, like, Apple's, Apple's bonds kick off $5 million a day. Apple's bonds kick off $5 million a day. There you go. Right. So Think you know, about how many startups they could fund with just the interest. Right, exactly. And, you know, like Apple was Apple was a startup at some point. Amazon was a startup at some point. Facebook was a startup more recently. Pinduoduo is, you know, $150 billion company that was a startup in 2015. So there's these, like, really big opportunities. And the venture world is still, I think, I mean, tiny compared to the public market. You, really you really think it's still so, that small? I think it's... That small. And I mean, I think the other- I guess statistically it is that small. Statistically it is that small. 
and then I think the other the other thing that I'm trying to figure out, like, because I'm spending a lot of my time, a lot of time in my own head thinking about, like, am I just being an idiot investing hard into a time when there's the most funding, when valuations are higher than they were before? You don't get to pick your time. You don't get to pick your time, one. And two, I think, like, one way that I'm thinking about it is that, you know, Mark Andreessen wrote Software is Eating the World a decade ago. And I think one kind of tweak on that is that it's turned total markets into total addressable markets. And, like, that's a basic sounding thing. But I was talking to a company that does, it's essentially a marketplace for photographers, right? Each photography firm in the country, on average, has 1.25 employees. There's a bunch of these tiny businesses. And then one company, it's a huge market. And then one company can come in and, like, take a bunch of, you know, a little piece of all of that. And you look at every little vertical. I never would have thought of photography as, as one. And you look at every little vertical. We're going to space. I talked to two space companies today that are doing, like, in the next year, commercializable things in space. So like, l- let me ask you about this. So obviously the fundraising was not difficult, right? It's all inbound. You'd have to sell anybody if they want to invest cool. If not like you'll move on. But when you're talking to companies like this on the other side, when you're, you're the investor, what type of questions are you asking? So, I mean, it really, really depends. Or why do they want, if, if everyone has money, why do they want yours? You can ask all the questions you want and they might be like, dude, we don't need your money. Right. So how do you do that? A hundred percent. And that's why I keep the fund size small, right? Because, they're happy to have, I'd, I'd say, for a couple of different reasons. Like, if I want to be, you know, if I want to be honest, it's because, you know, I they have either read and liked what I've written and it's changed the way they think about the company in a little way, or they want the call option in the future of me writing something about them, or... Um, that's right. Or, you, you know... know he's, he's packing McCormick. I'm back, that's you know, the, that's the answer to that question, though. There's it's that. Real like, I've, you know, I've... I've run a big 150 person team at a startup before the company did not do particularly well, but like, at least I have empathy there. I think people can tell at this point whether or not they like me from, you know, reading it. And like one of the yeah. things you want to optimize for um, in your cap l- table is sorry. not having assholes. So let me zoom in. So what I, what I meant by that was you're, if you're, if you did 16 deals this month, you're, you're not spending th- like days with each individual company. So you only have a limited amount of time with these people to, to, to mm-hmm. be on the call with them. What sort of, like, what do you want to know about these companies? What's the most important thing? So it really depends on the type of company, right? So today I talked to a medical device company and two space companies. And so what it comes down to in a lot of cases are what the unit economics are, what kind of contracts they have signed in all three of these cases. They're live and you know testing and whatever, but not generating revenue yet, but they have contracted work for the future. So looking at what kind of contracted work they have and then um, – uh, what the unit economics look like when those things happen. Frankly, like a lot of people are like, you know, I do my, all of my own diligence on this thing. I was actually talking to a friend about this today. We were both looking at the same medical device company and I was like, oh yeah, I committed on the call. The guy was great. He was- I don't know what their unit economics are. A space company has no clue you see, how much they were going to be able to sell whatever they're making for. You want to say, well, you can look at for, you know, in, in this case, you can look at it's doing space manufacturing. And you can look at the cost per gram to get something to space and the cost per gram to manufacture the value of this thing okay. on a per gram basis. And like there's like two curves that intersect and it makes sense or it doesn't. But for the medical device company, I was talking to a friend who was also looking at it who's also not a medical professional this morning. And he was like, yeah, I really like the company. I just need to like, you know, do some diligence and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I am not going to get smart on cardiology in 24 hours. Right? So, so it's the other investors. It's other investors. This came in through somebody who I know who is – a founder in the medical space who's also a TL fellow genius, you know, in some of those, I'm happy to follow people that I really, really trust in a space that they know really, really well. So we think like venture or whatever stage or, you know, early private is the only 
investment in the world that you can make where it's like, tell me who else is investing. It doesn't work like that in public what markets. If, if Buffett owns 4% of the company, who cares? What if I said that actually might be the only way a person without 50 analysts on their team could actually do it? And almost like, almost like you have to say like, all right, I acknowledge these are startups. They're not all going to work, but I feel like I stack the odds in my favor. If people that have 200 exits in their career are in this versus if they're not. And even if I could own less of that, I think it's a more conservative bet. A hundred percent. And think about it this way too, which is, you know, your point on Buffett is true. And also like Buffett announces that he's in something or people look at 13Fs for a reason. Like the stock moves on that, but it gets arbitraged yeah. away fairly quickly. Not and, as much and, as it yeah. used to, but yeah, Not as much as it used to, yes. but this, you have like this two week window after a lead has come in where you know who else is invested you know kind of their expertise and track record in the space. And you can say like, cool, I'm down to follow a trade, these guys. The, I mean, the thing that I'll look for always is if I like the founder and I like the way that they think at least about the unit economics and they think about the market and they think about their distribution and all of those types of things. So there's definitely that piece of it. But if that matches and then there's a good investor and that I know well and trust, then you know I'll- Would you ever make an investment where somebody that you really respect is in it, but you think the idea is stupid? But you say to yourself, you know what? They're going to find a way to make this not stupid. Would you ever do that? Uh, not based on the investor finding way. If I think the current iteration of the idea is stupid and the founder is just an absolute animal and we'll figure it out, like that's a bet that I would make in okay. some cases. So you're really betting on people, both who else is investing and who is running this thing. It's almost, it's to me, it sounds like that's like 80% of the bet. Well, Packy, you, you've seen this on AngelList. Like when you have like big name investors that get like snapped up in like 11 minutes. 100%. Yeah. And those investors make, you know, like Benchmark or somebody makes a very few number of investments a year. And so if you see like this firm with all these people that's done so well is all making you need to know. 12 investments this year, it doesn't guarantee so, anything, so right? But it gives you a better chance. Let's look at let's look at the opposite of that. I read all the fintech like announcements. The funding round, I I have, you know, investments in some of them, not a lot of them. The ones that I have investments in, I tend to also be a user of the product. That's just how I work. It uh, doesn't have to be that way. It's just worked out that way. Nobody else wants my money. So, um, but I read all these uh, news announcements when they raise money or when they do a transaction or when they hire somebody. And it's the same like 10 uh, venture funds in every one of these fucking press releases. And I said to myself, do they ever say no? And actually, and this is not to like put anyone on blast. I'm sure they know what they're doing. I don't think I've seen a FinTech announcement where 0.72 wasn't in it. Like, I really don't think I can think of one. Um, F primes in a lot of them, which is fidelity. And they're all smart, right? They know more than I know. But I really don't think anybody says no anymore. I think what everyone's doing is just spray and pray. Some of these, we can't tell right now, but we just want to be in everything. So we talk to everyone. Is that valid? Valid-ish. I, I think- It's what a you valid way to carry yourself in this space. I, I think what you don't see probably is- the number of companies that those guys look at that they don't. So you see the companies right. that they I don't, do invest right. in. I don't know the denominator. I know from for a fact that like even just to get, you know, on a call with the founder, I have to kind of wonder, like I have to think that the idea makes sense. I have to think that somebody else isn't doing it better. There's spaces where I, you know, there's spaces where I do know the spaces very well. And so those ones I'm doing, you know, definitely a lot more of my own, uh, my own diligence. And then there's others where like, if it gets to me coming from healthcare, like there must be something pretty special about it. But in spaces that I know, 
see 10 deals before I even take a call with somebody. Like see so 10 you think decks the denominator pitches. is larger than, than I maybe see just looking at the surface of the results. Who I, gets funded? I think that's, that's true. true. I think it's more cooperative. And so like I don't care about my alpha versus Turner, for example, in this case. Oh, Tiger Global is now on every single press release. I they they're, It's another firm that looks like they just say, yes, well, who cares? What do we have to lose? But then it, you look at the lot of companies that everyone. they're in. They're in a bunch of good companies, yes. and they're they're chasing a lower IRR target than you know a fund that makes ten concentrated bets. In you know who else? You know who else gets in, into everything? Jared Leto, guy's an animal. <laughs> I'm like not even kidding. What was I he in like, recently that I saw? Uh, well, that's becoming more and whatever. more common. Um, so so hopefully you do so well that these companies become giant companies, and we're gonna and so some of the employees will have the problem of needing liquidity. One day, and that is going to become, if this market is conti- going to continue to grow, a bigger and bigger thing. So there was an announcement last week or this Who put week. The, did you put this in pre-IPO shares are going to be a big Yeah, thing? yeah. I 100% agree with you. Like, I maybe f- feel more passionate about this every day. So Walter Bloomberg tweeted that Citi, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, SBV are going to invest in NASDAQ private market, which has been around for, I think, a few years. Like, this is this is coming in a big way. Liquidity for employees that have been in a company for six years, companies are staying private for longer, that want to buy a wedding ring or want to buy a house or whatever the case may be. Totally. Robinhood is starting to get allocation in IPOs and give it to, to their users. Uh, so, I mean, I think probably what ends up happening, right, is just that the IPO pop gets gets traded down uh, and the late stage. Because the ownership is broader before it even comes out. The ownership is broader before it comes out. More people get a chance to invest. Like, so, so you're taking the bucket yeah. of retail people right. and you're taking the accredited investors kind of out of that because they have a chance to invest in the secondaries. So a lot so, all right, so a lot of people in my side of the business, like asset management, wealth management, they refer to pre-IPO stocks as alternatives. It's not an alternative. It's the same companies that you're going to own in three months, you're just getting a less liquid earlier version before the bankers decide what it's worth to the public. It's not an alternative. This is equity. It's equity. Equity is fucking equity. There's a there's you know different disclosures that you need to make, and that's probably the Dude, biggest if, difference. If I have private, if I own Robinhood privately right now, and they go public in two days, my investment didn't go from being an alternative to a whatever a non-alternative. It's it's equity. So I feel very strongly about that, and I didn't always. But we have to – like Michael, Michael and I, the way we run the firm, the way we think about the investing side, we have to adapt when the world changes. We can't say things were better the way they were. So there might be things that we don't like about buying pre-IPO shares for clients. There is less liquidity, obviously. There is more room for pricing abnormality, obviously. But these were companies that would have been public in a previous era. And when I see $157 billion in a quarter go into this asset class, there's an equity return there, hopefully, positive return. But there's an equity return there that's being earned by somebody else. So we think we have to be there. We're do- we have a specific way we're doing it. Um, and I'm doing this with my own money as well. John, throw up this uh, the pie chart from Equity Zen. So I don't. Do you ever you ever screw around with their platform? You ever talk to these guys? I've looked at Equity Zen, Forge. I haven't Forge made any investments. All right, so we're, we like these guys. Uh, Michael and I gave them money uh, prior, just personal money. Let's see what happens. Uh, you know, it's not it's not perfect, 
but it's like getting better all the time, and they're working really hard on this. So I don't know what any of these companies do. I know no, what Instacart do. does. I don't know what Indigo, Upgrade, Domino, Data Lab, Headspace, I think they invested, they invested in Klarna. That's not on here. Oh. But one. that's right. Dude. These are just the first <laughs> – these are just the first eight, but Klarna's in this portfolio. So as an example of like how giant this market is becoming, they invested at Klarna at a $35 billion valuation, something like that. And I said to Josh, like, LOL, 24 hours later, SoftBank invests at Klarna at a $65 billion valuation. So so basically what we're doing, and and so now like making this available to, you know, some of our clients where it makes sense. But what we're basically saying is it's not an alternative. It's not meant to act differently than the stock market. They're equities. But – if companies aren't going public as early as they used to, which – and we don't think that's going back the way it used to be, yep. uh, then you can't just watch this happen and not try to figure out a way to do this for wealth management clients. So that NASDAQ news that you put in there, that's like the first of I think 100 headlines that you're going to hear in the second half of the year. People looked at all these massive IPO gains and they said, why am I not part of that prior to the IPO? And the technology is now available for that to happen. So, so don't, I, don't I you think, think so City, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, don't you think these were like driven by like client requests? Yes. Like we want shares before the, before the IPO. Totally. Then the question is how do you get the shares? So this is going to have to be a situation where the companies who have employees selling their shares in the private market, you know, some of them don't want it. But you have, and co- you some have, of them don't care. You have friends that work in a lot of these companies. Aren't like employees getting more vocal, like demanding liquidity? Not that they can make demands, but asking for liquidity. And it's become part of a program. Once you get it to a certain stage, that you're able to sell X percent of your shares. Now, I guess one of the problems is a lot of these companies have like an internal marketplace. Some of these companies have an internal marketplace where that goes first, and that could still be the case. Uh, a lot of external people will bid it up more than you know the internal would, or than a VC would or than somebody else would. And so maybe you want to go to one of these private markets because you'll get a higher price there. Airbnb is a good example of like there being a very vocal employee base that felt that they waited too long to go public. And then 2020 happened. And of course it all worked out great in the end, but we didn't know that would be the outcome. And there were employees sitting there like, oh my God, this is 90% of my net worth. I was buying a house based on this. Why did you wait so long to go public? There's going to be more of that. I mean, so imagine, these marketplaces are a great outlet for that. Totally. Imagine being a WeWork employee. Brutal. Oh, brutal. Brutal. Yeah. On a mat. On a mat. Well, employee number one, it wouldn't be bad. He but did every- just fine. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody else. Uh, let's let's Mike. Let's keep it moving. What do you think? Uh, okay. All right. I want to ask you what your thoughts are. China technology. Is this just uninvestable? And let me set this up so people know exactly what I mean by that. This is Wall Street Journal. China sent regulators, including state security and police officials, to Didi Global, uh, which is the biggest ride-hailing company in China, uh, on Friday as part of a cybersecurity investigation. Regulators from, listen to this, government units including the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, the Cyberspace Administration of China, the Ministry of Transport, All right, the Ministry hold, of Natural Resources. Hold on, I, I have to put on some hedging trades. Dude, they threw everything they had at this company. And I think a, a lot of our listeners know the story by now. The, they they warned the company, don't go public in New York. And that, cause, you know, we're not sure about the data you're collecting. And then they did it anyway, which is, you know, not not. You're not smart. supposed to do that, yeah. You're not supposed to do that. Um. So anyway, Bloomberg followed this up and they were basically like, Beijing's, 
July 10th announcement that almost all businesses trying to go public in another country will require approval from a newly empowered cybersecurity regulator amounts to a death knell for Chinese initial public offerings. This is like a trillion dollar thing that seems like companies – this affects companies worth $2 trillion, Chinese companies trading on foreign exchanges. That seems like it just got stopped in its tracks. How are people feeling about – like in making Chinese-based investments in anything. Do you own Tencent? Yeah. I own Tencent's my second biggest public equity holding. So like what like what would you have bought that today, knowing what we've just seen? Like would it change your your mind? Because it depends on how efficient you think the markets are. Like I don't, Tencent's an interesting example because so much of their value, I mean, a lot of their value is WeChat, which is like just infrastructure yeah, yeah, in yeah. China. Uh, both in terms of messaging platform and something that a ton of other apps are built on top of, but then a ton of their value is in this incredible investment portfolio that they have, including a bunch of Chinese and non-Chinese companies. They used to yeah. own 5% of Tesla. They own pieces of Spotify and Snap. And they own uh, part of the Warner Music Group that Ackman was trying to yep. uh, take a stake in or will take a stake in. Exactly. Right. And then They're all, all over the place. And then like Pinduoduo and uh, Meituan Dianping, like a bunch of the big Chinese companies they own as well. And so it's really interesting to think about like, what would even happen in a situation like that? Like what what you'd even be able to do as a Chinese regular? And they actually don't trade on the NYSE. Like Alibaba obviously is like the poster child. Oh, they're kind pink of what, sheets because they don't conform to our accounting. But yeah. so is Hershey. Oh, so is uh, Nestle. Like there are other giant foreign companies yeah. that are the same. Yeah. So. Um, but Alibaba, for example, traded in the U.S. and then Jack Ma disappeared. They took down the Ant Financial IPO. And so it's a – risk. Like I think these are some of these are incredible companies. Like Pinduoduo's I keep bringing them up. I'm writing about them this week, but just like growing incre- it, it, it like at levels yeah, that are that's unprecedented. The that's the double edged sword. They, they so have, you have two to, billion consumers, but they change the rules if you piss them off. And the so the China Bulls and I have friends who are like, you know, on the other side of this and the China Bulls would say, don't worry Alibaba, all these companies are going to fall back on a Hong Kong listing and U.S. investors will end up with an ADR. It'll be an exchange. You'll still be investing in the company. They just can't do this Cayman Islands uh, VIE shit, which the Chinese government doesn't like. Yep. And P.S., they're never going to conform to PCOAB uh, accounting standards and they're not going to answer questions of the New York Stock Exchange and then you just say like, well, I own ADRs elsewhere, so you know why not? So like, like that's I think maybe the sanguine view of this, but yeah. I feel like a lot is changing very quickly, and it's not going to be quite so neat. A hundred. I mean, ten cents also down from you know ninety. These things are going to they're going to to the high sixties. So I I would buy. I mean, the non investment advice, obviously, but personally, I would buy more here. Like I think a lot of this fear is being priced I think it's in, overblown. Maybe like I think it's at least. Blown, um, right? It's like blown enough. It's blown enough. It's down more than twenty percent, and the business continues to grow. Its holdings continue to get more valuable. All of that, and so at some point, there's a price at which the risk is worth it, and like the the money's not just going to disappear. And so there's a price between to ninety your, and zero. To your point, like we have Russian oil companies, they're four times earnings, but you can buy them. Yeah, you know, and and that's a lot of that is the risk being priced in that one day somebody wakes up and confiscates the assets. That's why it's four times earnings when BP trades at 12 times earnings. There's an, there's a reason for that valuation, but you can buy it. If you think maybe it should be six times earnings, 
that's a 50% appreciation in the stock with no fundamental change in the company. 100%. So that would be that that kind of bet. But I don't think these stocks are quite that cheap. Not, They're not, not quite yet. that cheap yet, but they are some of the most impressive companies in the world. And so it'll be interesting to see where this so, all. What do you think about all this? I don't, I've, I don't I have nothing intelligent to add. Nothing. So add something anyway. Um, no, let's just move on. So, all right, Pac, you spoke about getting all these meetings on your calendar. And I there was an article in the Journal this week talking about this, like, uh, this could have been an email type thing. I think that the pandemic created Frankenstein calendars. And listen, I, I'm, this is not me, but I totally get that some people are regimented, right? Like they need their calendar. They, they're super busy. If you're trying to get a group of people together, you need a calendar, right? Like I totally get it. But when I get like, hey, we'd love to talk or whatever, whatever, I just say, here's my phone number. Call me whenever. If I miss you, I will call you back. I don't want a scattered calendar. You're playing in a very different world. This image is great though. Like that, this was what my, uh, this is what my shit looks like. To me, that, that looks like anxiety. I don't me. write catch up. Mine is, mine is more like, uh, go to the gym. You're fat. <laughs> like I'll have that at 7 a.m. on my calendar. What does your calendar look like? Are you one of these people? Uh, my calendar. You're probably forced to because of who you're talking to. My calendar is an absolute disaster and I'll put like no meeting blocks on it. And then the day before I'm like, oh, I have three open hours for meetings tomorrow, which is why I end up just working all weekend and, and writing all weekend. But yeah, I'm looking at my calendar now and it's it's nausea inducing. Like This is my first day in the city since I moved back to Brooklyn two weeks ago because there's just so much stuff that there's not like a three hour window. When you to stick get something on When you stick something on Google Calendar, if you don't change anything, it defaults to an hour meeting. Like every item is an hour. The number one thing people should do is change that setting so that it's auto set for 30 minutes. I, Nothing should be an hour like with somebody that you're not actively doing business with. I tweeted, not even thinking about this conversation, I tweeted this morning that there's nothing better than when you don't agree on a time and the, the calendar invite shows up and it's either half an hour or 15 minutes and like you didn't get hit with that hour meeting. And it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. The my, clock should be running. My bag pump here, the calendar that I use, Vimcal, makes it like a little bit better at least. Why? And it makes it easier to use. Like, So do you use Calendly or any of that stuff? Oh, Calendly does not work well for me. I stopped using it. So Calendly, I don't like giving somebody like my whole calendar and saying pick whenever you want. Yeah, I don't like This, I can hit A and then drag open spots and be like, all right, cool. You can what pick something. Vimcal, V-I-M-C-A-L. Okay. Uh, small, small investment. you use Calendly? You ever send somebody a link to make their own appointment? You don't do that, right? Never. But you can say, choose between these, click, and then it's done. And so it's not like sending your whole calendar. It's just like sending the two slots that you want, but in yeah, a clickable like way. I, I'm in the fortunate situation where my, my my daily life is not like that. I just send somebody my phone number. Just call me if I miss you. I'll call you right back. Yeah. that I mean, that's beautiful. Does, to that, me, work? Does that work? That's what I do. Ugh. Oh, I have nine emails back and forth with somebody to set a time. That's, that's the stupidest thing. Email gets a lot of the blame, I think, for being miserable. And the problem with email is that it ends up in a calendar invite or like trying to schedule something. And so every email that I get, I'm like, damn, this is going to end in a meeting, isn't it? And it always ends in a meeting. Yeah. I I don't know that I have a good solution for this for anyone listening, but I'll, I, I do I do think but actually, saying I, I, no to a lot of stuff is really powerful. I am too. cognizant about that. Like somebody called me back. I said, hey, is it like cool that I sent that to you? I don't want to like overstep my bounds, but like you could call me whenever. And like I will call you back like as soon as I can now. But if people are busy, like you can't just call people randomly. So I, I get it. All yeah. Right. Um, I found that I found that if you uh, if you send somebody the Calendly link, oftentimes they won't even bother scheduling, which means they didn't even want to actually like they'll put it off. They don't mean to not respond, but then they forget. It wasn't that important, which means it wasn't that important. And there's nothing wrong with that, actually, like invite somebody to meet and then they don't really want to. 
Okay, no problem. Don't Neither put side is upset when the no. meeting falls through. No. Oh, it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, I want We're going to get into this paycheck cycle thing. What, what is going on? Like, is this, are we, is life as we know it I about think, to change? I think I love this. I haven't, I haven't given this. Like, I don't hate it, but I don't know if I love it. All right. So will daily pay, like do a job from nine to five, get paid at 501, <laughs> replace two week paycheck cycles, which when you say it out loud, it sounds very anachronistic that that even still exists. Um, and then what do you think about like, does it, is it better for workers? Is it better for employers? Is it bad for the accounting department? Like what, what do you think about all this? As long as it's just as complex for the accounting department, which in this case sounds like the software takes care of taking a two week thing and splitting it up into one day blocks and does it all automatically. If it's as easy for them, employers, I guess cash goes out more quickly. So a little bit of a challenge there. Your cash gets you get hit by 13 days, or I guess an average of seven days. For employees, it's obviously better. Like it'd be pretty patronizing, I think, to take the other side of this and say, like, you know, it's actually better every two weeks, or else those employees are going to go out and spend all their paycheck. Uh, but otherwise, like, if you were deciding, well, that is this, the argument. If we if if you don't have to wait for your money and I just pay you each day, you know, how people are talking about I live paycheck to paycheck. At least it's two weeks. I live day to day is not an improvement. So, but that's, I mean, like that is a, a person should be able to decide what to do with their own money. It's weird that the employer almost gets that float on somebody's, on somebody's income. Yeah, somebody if you design the system today, right? Like if there had never been a paycheck before, yeah. if you design the system today, someone would get paid every day that they worked. Well, that's what Uber did. They designed the system today. Yeah. They pay you for the work that you do literally like, while you do it. If you want to get paid every hour, damn it, you should get paid every hour. But you get paid every minute. The, in the gig economy, that is how it works. Yeah. Like DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, nobody's waiting two weeks for- Well, how about that? Like, I, I, honestly, I, did, I'm, I didn't read the article, um, but I think just when I saw the headline, I thought this was inevitable. Well, here's what it also does, though. It opens up this big can of worms about- should we even – I don't care of worms. Should we even be thinking about 40-hour work weeks, eight-hour days? Isn't that a vestige of like Henry Ford mm-hmm. building assembly lines and the, and the lines having to run during certain times uh, of day? Tracy and Joe's podcast, they spoke with that hotel operator. Yeah, we, we talked about that last week. It was great. But then right, so the question is like should employees be able to say, you know what? I understand the salary is for eight hours a day, but actually I want to get paid when I do the work. And I have five hours a day for you. I don't have eight. Do you have room for me in your schedule? And now you need software to maybe juggle twice the amount of employees who work half the amount of time each. But what and if it's I don't think that, I don't think that. I think it's more like you need to get this shit done in the next two weeks. And I don't care how many hours you put in. Figure it out. Or, that's a whole other conversation. Or if, yeah, that's a whole if other you are hourly, you clock in, you clock out. As soon as you clock out, the money gets transferred. Why not? Why? Why is that so hard? Well, do you have benefits? How do you calculate? Like, are you are you paying for part of people? Oh, listen, I, 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 Josh, you, I, Josh, I read the headline. I haven't, thought, I haven't exactly <laughs> you don't thought have the answer to this. But I mean, I think that that's one of the big things from COVID is that it's not just is it remote work or work in an office, but there's like all these things that kind of get exposed when you're in your house. It's like, am I going to sit in front of my computer from nine a.m. to five p.m. and work? Like, but, it uh, all seems and, silly. And, and Pecky, you have this idea that people are going to have multiple. I don't even want to say employers; they're going to do multiple. Jobs. I think a lot of people don't. I think that happens now for like a certain group of people do multiple jobs. I have three jobs. You have three jobs. Yeah. You tweet and write I, and podcast yeah. and <laughs> occasionally work here. 
So I, for certain people, they have, they do do multiple things. And I think more and more and more and more, as soon as kind of the matching problem solved, people who have particular skills but are going to be able fairness, to come in. We're not talking about, we're not talking about us because we're people that could set up an LLC. We could like have, we could like get paid as a corporation. Here's what this is about. This is an Arby's in Missouri. Um, Arby's location lists, quote, all caps, daily pay as the first bullet point in its job posting for a team member position. I love that. I- daily pay, a startup recently valued at upwards of a billion dollars. Packy probably owns 5% <laughs> of it. Says it works with some Arby's franchises to provide this service. So they have a company, Daily Pay, that's enabling them to do this. They're advertising it. Come work here and we'll pay you the day you work. That might be unstoppable. I think it, it, it is. is unstoppable. It's buy now, pay later. Like, right, the, the buy now, pay later model it's is sick, absolutely right. brilliant because the consumer is not paying any interest because the conversion rate increases. And it's the same thing here. The, the conversion rate to hiring somebody increases. And so the employer is willing to pay that. It's great for the, the, the employee who's getting paid daily without having to pay any extra interest on top. And so when something like that happens where you can just take a loose funnel and turn it into a slightly tighter funnel and that's where the money comes from, that's amazing. So the guy, Daily Pay chief executive is this kid, Jason Lee, who was great and almost famous as the lead <laughs> singer. He said, um, quote, we're used to picking up the tab for a friend's coffee and immediately receiving reimbursement through services like Venmo. He believes more people will start having a similar expectation of their employers as well. Totally agree. This is this goes back. This is this is back any day. I'll spack the shit out of yeah. this. Daily Pay right is now. a good SPAC name too. Yeah, I love it. Dpay. Dpay is the ticker. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there are others. Uh, there's a public company already doing this called Ceridian HCM Holdings C D A Y. Um, and then it looks like ADP and Paychex are striking partnerships to enable this. All right, so this is gonna be unstoppable. And I do think it's going to change the composition of people's work day. So, uh, Duncan, how many hours do you want to work tomorrow? <laughs> uh, what, are you, what are you thinking? I, I don't know. Maybe like three. Tomorrow's a light day, actually, for us. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I do want you to stay here for even the hours that you're not working. You need to stay yeah, in the office. Just make sure you're sitting around. It's important yeah. to have presence. Yeah. Right? yeah. Fair, fair, fair enough. I, I think this is going to be a tidal wave. I don't see how you stop it. And I'm sure like most other big changes in society – There'll be really good aspects of it and then some bad ones. And some people will choose to focus on the former, some people on the latter. Uh, All right. Is the internet making us awful? Too late. Or do awful people just use it more heavily? I really want to know what you think. Or both. Is this me? Uh, It's not a riddle. Is it really shitty people who are on the internet the most? Or does the internet bring out the worst in the people who are on it? It's the latter. That's what it is? I think it's, so I think it's, actually more the former. So like the obvious, the obvious answer here is that you get points and like people liking you and all of that for dunking on other people. And so like people dunk on other people on more some than plat- on some platforms, more than others yeah. on some platforms, more than others, but like YouTube comments, Reddit, Twitter, like a lot of these platforms, if you're public and you have some sort of thing associated with who you are, there's points for doing it. Right. I think on the other side though, like people who are kind of like this cranky just wouldn't have that many friends and like wouldn't interact with that many people. And so you don't know those people as much. hundred percent. But Packy, how about this? How many people are being exposed to a type of person that you otherwise, like otherwise would, would be totally, unpopular? But guys, yeah. how many people are miserable? One out of 10? Is it just, let's just go with one out of 10. It's a small, Oh, it's too binary. There are people who are miserable two days a week. That's me. 
And then, like, what's, what's you're laughing? That's but you, you interact with me that's, seven days a week. You know, I'm, I'm. No, but my point is, there's way. Oh, fine. Whatever. We can't quantify it. There's way more people that are not miserable than there are miserable people. Yet everyone, not everyone, a lot of people online are just dicks, and, and they're not. Also, and they're not miserable people. And then you also lose nuance too, because like the worst kind of person, I think, more than just an outright dick, is the like quote the, tweeter. The quote tweeter, the well actually kind of person, <sighs> is the absolute worst. But half of those people maybe in a real world interaction would be like, actually, you know, I think that's a good point, but blah, blah, blah. But when you have 280 characters to say that, like, you're just kind of like, no, you're wrong. Here's, here's Roxanne Gay. She wrote an opinion column at the New York times. Um, this is how she breaks it down. So she's like, she has influence. She's like, not, she's not a nobody. She's a somebody, but she's shocked at how, how important her stuff turned out to be online. Like by the reaction, which I, I, I guess I could relate to one person makes a statement Others take issue with some aspect of that statement, or they make note of every circumstance the original statement did not account for, or they misrepresent the original statement and extrapolate it to a broader issue in which they are deeply invested, or they take a singular instance of something and conflate it with a massive cultural trend, or they bring up Just something stop. ridiculous that someone said more than a decade ago. Right, but it's on and on and on. So people will almost no matter what you say, it's obviously not good enough for everybody. But then the question is like, is that just inherent in these platforms? And human nature. Michael Lewis always says like people don't read the books he writes. Like people just interpret shit their own way. Yeah. But I think I think I think the internet just amplifies that a billion times. But then I, I think there are certain platforms where it's just self-selecting. The type of people who thrive in one place wouldn't necessarily thrive in another. Totally. There are huge Instagram accounts that have no followers on Twitter. Well, it's, 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 like, vice versa. it's like people that go to sleepaway camp and are like super cool, but they're like total losers at home. <laughs> well, def- there's definitely some element of people playing a role that they see themselves as online. And, I, you know, to, what was this it? Is two too- weeks ago tweeted something like, I can't believe that Shopify is worth 11 times as much as Apple because the stock price is 11 times higher. And like you've just missed so much nuance on the internet where that got out of my little circle of people who know me. And I had people, I think it had 6,000 likes and a oh. ton of quote tweets. But how could that be misinterpreted? I how know. Could, like how? So it's not, I don't think it's malice in a lot of cases. I think it's an easy opportunity to dunk. I think it's some people legitimately thought that I was just being an idiot. Like, you know, that, it, it, that one gave me a, a pretty interesting window. Every time, every time I think that like it can't get any worse in terms of somebody like clearly missing a joke, like it, it's always there's a, it never ends it never, and it never gets better. I think yeah. um, I th- so I think the answer is probably a little bit of both. Extremely online people probably suck in real life, but then there's the nature of what gets amplified Wait, on pr- these present company. Yeah, we're pretty awesome. No, I'm not saying all. I'm saying there are people that just like. In real life, they're miserable and they take it out on the internet. Yes. Why wouldn't they? They don't have another outlet, right? So I understand wh- where it's coming from. But then I also think that there are aspects of these platforms that make a good person look like a bad person because they're having a bad day or they just don't know how to act. Totally, and totally. Pro- like, and I'm sure I've I've made myself – I've not done myself favors on any of these platforms uh, at times, I don't think we're going to solve this today. Packy, you wrote like a forty thousand. I mean, <laughs> my God, sir, this actually infinite. Honestly, I don't even know what it is, but it's basically like there's like something called like play to earn. Like what what what's going on here? Well, wait, what's Axie Infinity exactly? So start Axie, from like the very beginning because I don't think most people have heard of this. I hadn't really. I had heard it was kind of in my peripheral vision, but I hadn't really 
heard of it or, or gone deep on it until last week. Axie Infinity is a blockchain-based game where it, it operates a lot like Pokemon, except you own the characters as NFTs, and then you fight those characters against either you know PvE, the environment, the computer, or PvP against other players, or you go on these daily quests. And you fight them in teams of three, they all have different powers, and then whoever wins gets points. And in a normal game, you'd get points. In a normal game, you know, today the most popular model in gaming. Normal, like a role, like a massive role-playing game. Like a massive role-playing game, where most of today's big games are like the, the free-to-play model, where it's free-to-play, but then you buy skins. Sometimes it's play-to-win, where you can Roblox, actually like, buy things that Minecraft. give you an advantage. Yeah, yeah. Roblox, Minecraft, Fortnite, all those kinds of games. Yeah. The interesting thing about this one is that you buy the Axie as an NFT and then you own it. The company What's behind an Axie? it. Axie? That's your avatar? That's your character? That's your character. And so you, some people have like huge groups of them. You need at least three to start playing right now. They go for probably to start. The floor is around. Oh, this is so cute. $200. So cute looking. They do look like Pokemon. They do kind of look like Pokemon. But one, you own them. Two, the, the play to earn model is that in order to play the game, you need to get axes. Who is this for? Like five-year-olds or incels? Like who's on this platform? <laughs> so there's probably some five-year-olds. There's probably some incels. Hold the on. What's, biggest... I, what's an incel? Involuntarily celibate. <laughs> what? Okay. It's a, it's a serious condition. Go what? ahead. <laughs> so the biggest. Why, why do we have a record screech? <laughs> I've never heard of it. All right, go on. That's really? A... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I feel, like, I feel like you've heard a lot of these things. Nope. All right. I don't know any acronyms or anything. I'm not going to end with that. All right, go ahead. All right. So the biggest group of people playing this game are incels. Are right. incels. The second biggest group, and no, I'm kidding, Axie players are great. The biggest group of people playing the game are people in the Philippines, actually, who. Instead of working for $5 a day at a local shop or doing some sort of job, they are coming to Axie Infinity, playing the game by completing quests, earning SLP tokens that they can exchange on Uniswap or SushiSwap or one of the decentralized exchanges for actual money. And so they... Play the game How for much money hours and hours about? a day. So they spend a whole day playing. This sounds super fun. They can make about <laughs> <laughs> no. They, they can make about twenty dollars a day, right? So you can four x oh. what you'd be making in in the country. And the, Who I mean, the f- has time for this? The difference. Oh, I mean, right? How many words did you write on this topic? Eighty two hundred. Did you so go to the Philippines to the to crazy? Research this? The crazy thing about this, and the thing that caught my attention, is that in. What was it? April, it did six hundred and seventy thousand dollars in revenue. Okay. In May, it did no. So May six seventy. April or June twelve. Whatever. This month, after making six hundred seventy k in a month a couple of months ago, this month it has already made ninety five million dollars, and we're on the twenty second. Get L O L. What? Insane, right? Wait, and so they make money in two ways. It has made. You mean the aggregate of all the players, the users, or the or platform the itself? The company itself, and the company only makes that on fees, so the aggregate volume is much bigger. The company makes money in a couple of main ways right now. They also sell land in this universe in other ways, but the two main ways that it makes money are, one, there's a marketplace for these NFTs, just like OpenSea or NBA Top Shot or whatever else, and whenever somebody buys one, they take a 4.25% fee, so that's one. 
And the other way is breeding. And so instead of, you know, Fortnite, if they want to release a new skin, then Epic and Fortnite make a new skin or they partner with somebody and sell a skin to users. Yeah. In this I case, got Space Jam 2 skins. Wait, 95 you just million? got Space Jam 2 skins. Hold on. How many employees do they have? It's just like two- 40 employees. They have 40 employees. Team is co founded uh, out of Vietnam. Um, and the, the biggest one is is their breeding fees. So instead of them creating new axes, I told players you who have them- And cells were part of this. Tell me about the breeding. <laughs> these are copy. cells. So the, the breeding is- These are cells. These are, <laughs> these are cells, right? How like, many users? You need to be- what the, How many users? It's like five guys. Uh, this is, I think they've just passed over 600,000 daily active users. And so like that's a whole nother thing that they're onboarding all these people who are not into crypto by any stretch of the imagination, they're onboarding them to crypto. So that's one interesting piece of it. The biggest way they make money though is through breeding. And to breed, you need to pay for AXS token, which is their kind of like governance token. It's built on ETH. It's built it, on ETH, but it's, it's built on Ethereum, but then they have their own side chain. So they're I mean, there's so much interesting stuff about this company, but they're vertically integrating. They built their own NFT marketplace instead of using OpenSea. They built their own side chain instead of using uh, an Ethereum sidechain like a Polygon or an Optimism or something. Um, and they have this NFT marketplace to take fees on. And then when people breed, they have to use these in-game tokens. So the AXS holders ultimately are the ones who own the treasury that this revenue goes to. How quickly can they exchange that token? Like that. So you exchange in-game it. In-game or somewhere else? So somewhere else. And so they're okay. going to do more and more and more. They're going to actually build their own exchange to compete with a SushiSwap or a Uniswap where you just directly trade your coins. Right now you have to bridge over to Ethereum and then trade it on Uniswap. So it takes a little bit of time, but like, you know, 30 minutes or 15 minutes or however long that process takes. Right. This uh, goes more to, to your theory though, of the fact that if you want to be in this world, it has to be your whole day. Yeah. You can't, you can't do this. You can't on, casually on the side, do this. Right. But some people can, right? How? Like, so there's some people who are playing. You can't be a doctor. There's some people who are playing to make a living. This. You can be a doctor and buy Axie NFTs to speculate. You can buy to play occasionally. Packet, there are zero doctors. No they're buying axes. I think so. Based on the reaction that I've seen from the comments, because this one got a, sh- a ton of comments, and a lot of the people commenting are people who want scholarships. So that's another thing. It's too expensive for these people to buy their own uh, axes. So there are scholarships that are set up that essentially loan them out and then take a cut on their earnings. It's this whole it's never stop. It's I mean, this whole economy. We, it's a mirror facing a mirror facing a mirror. <laughs> Dude, you know, I have a t- I have a test for these kind of things. It's called a grandfather test. Think about my father's father. He woke up at four o'clock in the morning and unloaded fruits and vegetables from ships, literally in the fucking Bronx. Here's my test. I read 500 words on this. Here, here five words. The Axie protocol generates revenue by Stop. taking a 4.25% fee when player. And I just say, would my grandfather punch me in the fucking face if I, if I told him? I never met him, by the way. He died before I was born. If I explain this to him, how many words could I get through? before he literally knocked me out. And when I hear terms like virtual real estate, like that's it. Like he, his fist would be cocked. I know <laughs> I, I would be out f-ing cold when I told him I was no, I, real estate <laughs> in, on a computer that doesn't exist. Those, that and fruit I, is now being unloaded I, in a lot of cases by machine. Like, and virtual I, but, fruit, he would f*** you up for that too. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. But I, I mean, like part of this too, it's like you don't need as many physical workers for things. And so like part of this is they want to run UBI experiments where they literally yeah. give people UBI here and see if they can find meaning by playing the game and being part of the community. Like we are going to need to figure out new jobs for people to have as more did and more gets see, automated. Did you ever see the Pearl Jam video, Do the Evolution? No. Okay. A little before your time. Highly recommend. It's animated. It starts from prehistoric. Duncan, you seen this? 
You a Pearl Jam guy? No, no idea. Nobody in this room has seen this? I haven't John? seen it. All right. Watch this on YouTube later. I'm not going to get into it, but I'm going to get into it. It starts in prehistoric times, and it's the story of humanity. The final frame, as you can imagine, is literally people with their brain connected directly to a screen. And, like, there's just rooms and rooms and rooms full of people. It's they what zoom it is. Out. It's what it is. What it's what that's where we're headed. So uh, Pearl Jam is very prescient. I mean, hopefully, what they find is that you can find like because you have this controlled environment here. Hopefully, what they find is that if you give people UBI, they'll still stay engaged and stuff and whatever. And then it doesn't all have to be screens. You can give people UBI and they can go True. hang out in the countryside and whatever. But this does give a nice sandbox to test economic policy in a way that you can't in the real world. You understand why it's hard for like no, most people. Be like you about to say, I mean, you about to see normal people. You, yeah, a hundred percent, a thousand percent. Like this seems wild to me as well. I totally understand why this seems crazy, but I do think like, I mean, one of my biggest beliefs and one of the things that kind of goes through all the not boring pieces is that shit just keeps getting sure, crazier sure. and crazier yes. and crazier. Well, that, and so you you're right about you're right about prepared. that. Although, and whenever you yeah. say this is it. The next thing after it is crazy. Everything we yeah. everything we saw right. last year we thought was the craziest thing that ever happened, and then this year got crazy. Packy stuff you were writing eighteen months ago made no sense to me. I, I'm still like I'm finally starting to learn a little bit. Like Matthew Ball is writing about the metaverse. I read that piece in 2018. Whatever. I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about now? And so here we are. But I still don't know how you learn about this in four days and write about it like a day late. Like I don't know how you do. Yeah, that. but what he's doing though is cumulative. He's not approaching a topic. Not from really. Scratch. You yes, just heard really. about. Didn't you just? Didn't you just learn about Axie? But he knows about Sushi Swap. Yeah. From from six months ago and Uniswap and how one is different than the other. He's building upon a knowledge base that's like um, cumulative. It's not approaching this topic fresh and then having to learn every aspect of it. Because then it would be 100%. Yeah, I wrote a piece in January. You're not that smart. I'm not that smart at all. (laughs) So I wrote a piece in January about kind of the intersection of crypto and the metaverse when I knew nothing about the topic. And so that was really, really hard to research. That's your barrier to entry though. Because if Batnick said, I don't like Packy getting all this attention on the Axie beat, I want to wade in here and do my take. Axie beat? Oh. Good luck yeah, because yeah. Axie is the end. I was about to say, what the hell is Axie? I know we were just talking about it. <laughs> it literally sounds like it sounds. But it's it sounds like it's a, a the hellscape. knowledge is cumulative, and now because you know, like the founder of Geo or the founder of Axie Geo reads not boring, and so I was able to, to talk to him. So that's cumulative as well, and that lets you skip a lot of the knowledge, and you can be like, All hopefully right, he I have doesn't listen. Hopefully questions. he doesn't listen to this podcast. All right, let's keep it moving. We're gonna go to soapbox now. Uh, by the way, I just noticed you're you're wearing a Bucks T-shirt. Were you happy with the outcome? Thrilled, of the, thrilled, thrilled. You are right. Thrilled. So the story I kept thinking about really quickly. You and I saw the Knicks play at Pfizer Forum in Milwaukee, and the fan favorite from Milwaukee is Bobby Portis, who was on the Knicks when we went. So we were we were he in had the a towel. We over were his head we were in, in the game. second row. Thank you, Tony Stick. Thanks, Tony Stick. We that sat was, behind dude, the basket second I row. was shouting at every Knicks player. They were four feet away from me. I was like, Alonzo, Alonzo, Trier. There's nobody who knows who that is. Bobby Portis was the only guy to look at me and give me a wink. With those, like, crazy Giant eyes. eyes. <laughs> Gigantic <laughs> eyes. He gave Mike a look and, like, because I think we, we were wearing Knicks stuff. or I was wearing this shirt. All right, so they knew we were friendly. but So Portis, by the way, I think we lost by 50 points that game. Killed. Like, Giannis just... Like he was hitting the ball into the net with a golf club at one point, but um, Bobby Portis is like the fan favorite. So it was cool to see that because we saw him there. I don't know where I was going with this. All right. right. Uh, What's something you think everyone should be paying more attention to or less attention to? I just wanted to share this. I don't, I don't know if you guys have a big reaction to this. We are still underestimating the power of the web still 
after 25 years, we still have not fully grasped. What do you mean? How important it is for just everything. Um, just this is from Squarespace. And I know you, you love surveys, Mike. He did a big study of Gen Z and millennials. And I didn't know those were two different things. I, I did, but uh, anyone younger than me is a millennial. All right. Uh, 60% of Gen Z and 62% of millennials believe how you present yourself online is how is more important than how you present yourself in person. So more than half of people think your online presentation matters more. Um, what else did they say? Well, real quick. Uh, one in two Americans say they can remember the color of a website better than someone's eye color. 71% of millennials so what agree. A, what a weird question 58. to ask. No, meaning the impression that you make with a website is more important than the impression you make face-to-face, which I don't think my generation, like young Xers, agrees with, but I can see that it's trending in that direction um, is number one. Last thing here, uh, 44% of Gen Z and 39% of millennials think they make a better impression online than they do in person compared to 21% of Gen X and 8% of baby boomers. Oh, that sounds low. I'm definitely better online than in real life. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Gen Z are more likely to remember off the top of their head the last website they visited, 43%, than their partner's birthday, 38%, or their own social security number, You know why this service are bullshit? 0% of people remember the last website they went to. Uh, really? You know the last website you went to? Well, I mean, no way. technically I'm on one I right now. I have 19 now, so. tabs open right now. I went to axiworld.com. <laughs> <laughs> was, All right, enough. He was setting up his Axie. All right, I think... Uh, anyway, the last thing I want right. to say on this, we are still underestimating how powerful it is to build a web presence. And like, it almost is taking the place of needing to build any kind of physical presence anywhere. And the ramifications of that, I think, like are in every facet of life. So I'm still shocked by... And you're bringing it full circle back to the first conversation that we had about the amount of dollars flowing into venture. Yeah. Like, I think that, to me, is why, you know, that prices are it. obviously high, but I also think there's just still so much room ahead, and that explains a lot of why the money's coming earlier. So I totally agree. That's a big factor there. All right. Um, I want to talk about narrative. So Durant's, like, literally, if his shoe was an inch smaller, the, the Nets would probably be the champions. Um, the coach of the Bucks would have got fired and we would be talking about Giannis like, this is who he is. He's just not the guy. He, you know, he's a great regular season player. And that was a month ago. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's wild. So and for now, the people that weren't watching that game and don't know what you mean by that, explain why the length of Durant's shoe literally changed all of our opinions so about Giannis. Durant hit uh, a shot to tie the game versus, to, the, versus, to, the, versus the, Bucks. the Bucks to send it to overtime. And his shoe barely was on the line. If he was an inch behind, and uh, they would have, they would have won. They would have won the series. Game would have been over. Would have, would have been the guess, best. Would have been the net. The Nets would have yeah, advanced. It would have been the and best. The Bucks would have. It would have been, been the best game winning shot of all time. Uh, I don't know if I'm about that, but up there. And we would be talking about Giannis very, 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 very differently. Now, now, today, he's the best player in the world. He doesn't have what it takes. Right. He's not, he's not a guy and that can take you pipping. all the way. And it, yeah. would, it would have been justified. Dude, he might have left Milwaukee. Like, it would well, it, it, it just on the extension, but it would have been justified, that conversation that we would have had. And now, because of a different series of outcomes, he is the best player on the planet. Uh, and you could quibble, maybe it's Durant, whatever. But just the, the, the idea that, like, just what a... What a moment that things could be so different from, from something so little. And then just like also like how many things 
are affected in the future by such a minor detail like that should really humble all of us. I think like about our successes. Well, I, that's and and our failures. Dude, that's like just, that is my story to a T. Because if Mario Chalmers did not, and speaking of basketball, uh, if Mario Chalmers did not hit that shot in 2012 against the Knicks to put us down like 21, I would have stayed at the game and I never would have met Josh. Right, fair point. Do you have any stories like that, like near misses? You, you've heard like the 9-11 stories, the reason yeah. why the guy couldn't make the, the flight and it was so trivial. Like, do you have anything like that? Or you might not even know that you have things I like that. I don't think I know that I have things like that. But you definitely do because everyone does. Everybody does. So you guys see the meme, or I don't know if it's a meme, the image of like the different paths that your life could take. Like it's just, it's pretty cool stuff. All right, Packy, what do you got? So a lot of people would react to that just by like going full, full-fledged into God's plan. Like all of this is happening for a reason. They can't accept oh, I go that randomness. I go the be. other way. I'm all the way the other way. Did, but, did you ever yeah. see the butterfly effect? Yeah, I love that Ashton movie. Kutcher? Love that movie. Um, Maybe you think of that. Where like minor things change and like the outcomes are so wild. The Simpsons had a great episode of that where like Homer kept going back in time. Like he stepped on a lizard and then came back in the future and the whole world was upside down. So I, yeah, I, listen, I just, I don't, I'm not comfortable with the idea that things can randomly change the future so much, but I know it's true. I'm very comfortable. And uh, it's a good point. All right, Pac, you got a soapbox? Got a soapbox. We're going right back to NFTs. All right, next. Good. Can't get enough. <laughs> well, you, all right, they're not dead. I agree they're not dead, but they're in an NFT winter. Is that oh, the term so, that I've heard? So I, I, there's the NFT winter thing, but I mean, I think Axies are a good example. OpenSea, which is the big NFT marketplace, just raised $100 million from Andreessen Horowitz at a $1.5 billion valuation. And I think the point that you just made about how people view themselves online and how online appearance is more important than offline appearance for a lot of people is a really interesting point in NFT's favor. So there's companies like Artifact, which make like, you know, NFT shoes that you can put on top of your body and put in your Instagram picture. And if a lot of your presence is- But it's not an actual, you don't get the shoe? You don't actually get the shoe, but Wait, if a lot of what NFTs? You, no, dude. No, it's, saying, it's like a digital NFT. Oh, digital image of a shoe oh, onto your picture. Or they have online. like clothes or oh, cool. whatever. And I feel hip. And like, if you care more about it. your online persona than not, and you care about the environment and so you don't want to waste clothes to just take an Instagram picture- why not buy a digital version of something Dude, that I you need, can show off in your I need Instagram? Like, I need like a digital collared shirt. <laughs> Put collars on those t-shirts. There you go. Um, can A16Z single-handedly will something into being a thing? Can they invest in something like OpenSea, which from my perspective, it looks like a lot of the interest has collapsed. And I'm not saying that means it's dead, but are they influential enough that by writing that check, they will attract enough people to come back to that? and revive it or reinvigorate it? Or am I overstating like how powerful one VC can be? I think you're probably overstating how dead it is on the one hand. Okay. Um, and then on the other hand, I think what they can do probably more is attract talented people to OpenSea. They can attract crypto insiders to OpenSea. Like, they, hey, this thing's still going. This thing is like yeah, yeah, yeah. not only going, but like you've only seen like the tiny version of the vision and like here's the huge vision and that's right. what A16Z believes in. And so I think that's what they can help with more than the general public. Although the crypto community is really small, so they can also kind of bring people back in. They Dude, have a great reputation you, there. Unisocks are still $50,000. Exactly. Like, Jeez. What about, I'm looking at CryptoPunks right now. What Zed, Zed just raised at a massive valuation the horse racing game. That's also very cool. And it's kind of axie like where you own horses Virtual and then you can breed race. them. And the, then the lowest CryptoPunk is uh, $41,000. 
And the really cool thing about that. I like to sit in my basement late at night and watch my virtual horses breed. That's like my big, that's my big thing. You pay extra for the version where you can actually watch it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get no, it. I don't get it. How much of this shit is just like trying to keep enough activity going until somebody comes along and figures out the real thing? That a billion people go. I think yes. I, think I need that. Everybody would admit that they're iterating to kind of bigger, like more kind of general use cases, like digital big, kids. Digital kids. I mean, yeah. Why would you pollute the environment with an actual kid? A hundred NFT you. kids. Finally, finally, yeah. I've convinced you guys. No, right. <laughs> but I, I do think that everybody agrees that they're iterating to kind of more and more. But I feel like they're cases. waiting. They're like, let's just keep this alive until somebody makes. The Jesus NFT, like the thing that everybody wants. And that I concede that that's probably what's going to happen eventually. But also CryptoPunks is is like an interesting one or something nah, like nah, a CryptoPunks. Not, not big enough. And it's not that. But like they'll start making, and they'll do this with Axie too, but they'll start making movies and Netflix shows. And like maybe if you're one of the owners of one of like the best CryptoPunks, you'll get paid royalties because your CryptoPunk is in the thing. People are already doing like – Owning, like creating content around their individual crypto punks this stuff's and like not, negotiating this stuff's, this stuff's not going away. It's not going away. And like, think about, you know, Disney. But, but it cannot go away, but also remain like very beneath the surface and not important. Also, it could be just a cult thing that goes on, but doesn't really matter to most people. Yeah, not I think saying that but will I, be the case. I, but I do but. think when it starts happening that like there is a crypto punks show and people who don't care at all about NFTs start watching it and they're like, wait, people own these things. And so instead of like Mickey Mouse, which Disney owns, like there's a guy in a basement somewhere who owns that CryptoPunk and he's making money off. Like, if they make an alien movie with CryptoPunks, I'll watch. There you go. Fair, all right. Fair enough. Um, let's go into, let's, let's finish out with favorites. The best thing you've read, watched, listened to, et cetera, et cetera. I have two. startup on Netflix. I finished the first season. Apparently this was on a channel called Crackle and they were making this show. Show is dope. And the actors are really good. And the guy's what's that guy's name? He was in the British office and the Hobbit. And now he's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know that guy? Marlon Brando. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Well, he's like one of the main guys. And then the kid from the OC is in it. Yes. Uh, Seth. Seth. And it's just good. Like the like I I was like surprised at how good it was. Why did you watch it yet? When did you when did it get good? Because my wife made us stop watching after like half an episode of no, no, no. Episode. Pick it back up. It gets good halfway through the season, but the whole thing is about terminology that you are swimming in. Like it's a, literally it's Bitcoin, crypto, the the uh, the way the real world interacts with that stuff. And it's like it's right up your alley. I'm surprised you didn't finish it. Um, I don't want you to tell your wife she was wrong, but like maybe secretly go back to if it. If you're listening, you were Did you watch you were this? Wrong. Mm -mm. You haven't seen this? Nope. Okay. All right. I like it. The other thing is. I'm not even talking about the music. I thought the album covers for John Mayer's new one are, are genius. I love shit like this. First of all, you guys are too young, but it looks like a record that you would see in 1988 at like Tower Records. And I like how the sticker on it for Spotify is green. And then where's the other one? Look at that hair. Yeah. Well, he's going for something. Is he's that a mullet? He's going not for really. like, where's, do we have the Apple one too? I don't know if we have that. All right, so he, but he's going for like a, a vibe. I think nostalgia is very big right now, and is people it? people want to be transported back. Yeah, there, there's dude. I want to go back. I swear, I want to be eleven. People want to go back to a. People want to go back to a, an earlier, simpler time. So I think he kind of nails the, the the mood right now. I really um, do. I listened to this once. It's, I, I'm a rap guy, but it's a very vibey record. I think people would like it if they tried it. 
Um, and if you're a John Mayer fan, you don't need to tell me that. Tell you that. All right, Mike, what do you got? All right, I listened this morning to Ryan Russillo interview Dan Patrick. It was so good. Did they talk about sports? And did they, um, get to, did they get to that? Dan pa- Dan Patrick told a story where he used to interview Michael Michael Jordan after the finals every year, and um, so Michael Jordan came in, did the quick interview. And Dan Patrick said, it's a shame you're retiring. And Michael's like, why did you say that? He said, because I, I wanted to play you. And he goes, how the f*** are you going? Get up right now. And Dan Patrick's like, he's like, I'm, I'm interviewing Phil Jackson in like a minute. I got I to go. Like, and Michael like, was like, no, get up and show me how you would guard me. And this was like literally <laughs> right after they won the finals. Not, I don't think it was like a week later. It was like after the game. It's like 10 minutes after he's the game. He's such a psychopath. <laughs> like the competitive, like, I don't know. I mean, anyway, the, the entire interview was great. I got a list of that. Looney, lunatic. Shout to uh, shout to Ryan. He's uh, he's got one of the best podcasts out there. Love listening to uh, his his Life listeners. Advice. His listeners who write into him are absolutely hilarious. All right, Packy, what do you got? I'm gonna go with another Netflix show. Never have I ever. Have you guys watched this? Not yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so good. So it's about this Indian high school Pitch girl. Me. Why should I watch it? Indian high school girl. So there's bonus points for us because my wife's Indian, and so there's a lot of jokes that we get. Okay. But it's also just like very funny. It's one of those if you like high school drama type shows. It's like one of the best done versions of that I've ever seen. Season two just started on Netflix. I got like halfway through episode one and I started getting sad that I was running out of the season already. Like, oh, uh, well, it's just like when you have a show like that, it's a good sign. Exactly. Were you like, wait, how many more are left? Maybe exactly. I serve this. We we slowed from two a night yeah. to one a night for that reason. Can I just say one thing? Um, I like half a second thought about tweeting this, tweeting this the other week, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to get involved. I think. Curry is like the most underrated thing on the planet. And even though there's like a bazillion Indian people, I feel like like in America, we don't eat enough curry. That's we a, don't eat enough Indian food in, that's a, in general. That's a hot take. It was, I love, I mean, my wife doesn't like it. I love it. I need to have more of it. What's amazing. So I, I spent a year pretty much during. She Indian the American pandemic. or from India? Uh, her parents are from India. She's Indian American. So her parents cooked that like good shit. So and I don't like, need to tell you, there's like a million different types. It's not, it's not it, just curry. A million like, different types. And like they're vegetarian, and so I— Yeah, what's American food? I like, Can you imagine? Yeah, I right. eat vegetarian every night, and I loved it. And, like, okay. that's how good the flavors are, I think. Okay. All right, so you have Agreed. two. So you have Never Have I Ever and Indian food. Love Indian food. Michael, uh, join John. All right, did you have fun today, more importantly? I think I might have even had more fun this time than last time. We're Dude, good. An, an hour and 15 minutes went by. You haven't funded anything. Uh, like I'm, 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 I need to do this more often. I'm worried that there are people waiting for emails back. He has you, 17 so calendar requests. I in his probably inbox. do. All right. Well, we're going to we're gonna bring you back here as often as you'll come back. You're the man. We love having you. I want everybody to go to Not Boring, which is Packy's Substack. He's got 62, was 62,000? 63,000 now. 63,000 subs. Awesome. and. Every one of them well-deserved. Every one of them being inundated with brilliant insights. Are you, are you bi-weekly now? What are you doing? Sometimes bi-weekly, sometimes once a week. I mean, what, the, dude, the level of stuff that you're putting out is ridiculous. I don't know how you do it. Um, so check out Not Boring and our friend Packy McCormick and follow him on Twitter and Axie and Open Seas and all the platforms he's on. Um, don't forget, check out YouTube.com slash The Compound RWM so you can watch some of the clips from the making of the show. Always a lot of fun. Uh, Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Duncan. We love you guys for all the work that you've been doing on the show. And if you guys are into podcasts, don't miss Animal Spirits every Wednesday morning. And don't miss, uh, when are you doing Talk Your Book? Mondays now? All right, I'm done plugging stuff. uh, We'll see you guys next Friday. Have a great weekend. The Compound loves you.
Pretty good. Look at the timing on that, too. I'm like almost a professional at this point. 523. Bang. Thanks again to our sponsor, Masterworks. Go to masterworks.io slash compound for more information.